Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two. One. All right, everybody. Here we are. Welcome yeah. once again to. I don't know why I, I seem to want to kind of do that. Well, you've got chair. your 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 bright songbird shirt on today. Yeah, the, it, it is. Well, we've got very some bad, vibrant. You're warbling over there. I might need this later. There's some yeah. bad weather coming. So, I, oh, is it for safety? For safety, yeah. On the way home. So, well, I'm you like, are you are a mood dresser. I just thought it was because yeah. we were talking about. Neotropical birds. Today. Yeah, I wanted to be bright for the birds. That's yeah. right. I think so. we are. I mean, none of us are. Everybody's kind of bright today. So, yeah, so welcome uh, West Point, Mississippi, everybody, the Gamekeeper Studio. We always uh, have something interesting we think to talk about. Yeah. And um, today's uh, no different, but this is a a little unusual topic for us. Birds. Uh, I mean, we talk about birds all the time. We we really do. We talk about the Merlin app. We talk about seeing something and... uh, and uh it, so it I mean, comes we're infatuated with ducks we're infatuated with turkeys you know yeah i mean we like the hunting stuff yeah and the we, feathers we the seem grain. to know a whole lot about that but the, the bird thing is is new to a lot of us around here it is we're really interested in it well it probably all i mean it started for me in the spring woods you know obviously listening for turkeys and then everything else you hear and, and you see them moving around it's like Ooh, what's that Ooh, what's that what's he doing well, you, and you, you don't she. realize how many are out there no. making noise that you can't see until, right. you, like, when I turn on that Merlin out, Unbelievable. it just, it, it really is. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. So, um, look, let me, let me go ahead and introduce. So, we're excited to have Dr. Adam Ronke, and he's on, on through Zoom. Let's hit the horns. All right. Now, Lanny, we've got a Yankee in our midst here, <laughs> this, uh, but he went to Mississippi State, didn't he? He, he did. Yeah. But he's from uh, from New York. Yeah. Rochester, New York. He went to Penn State. Uh, you, you know, he got a degree in uh, wildlife uh, and sciences. Uh, but but uh, I'm not sure why we hit the horns there. But uh, but then he he ended ends up down here at Mississippi State, and he gets oh, oh, a, oh. a a doctorate in forest resources. So. Hey, hey, that's an awesome forestry school over there. He's really been is. he's been around the country too, yeah. but but Adam, we're excited to have you. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I, I think I have another title, uh, a word in front of Yankee, but this is a family show. We'll keep it that way. <laughs> but, uh, that's how I'm uh, referred to here in the office. Uh, they used to just yell down the hallway uh, for uh, blank Yan- Yankee, and I, I knew it was uh, my phone to pick up. So hello, uh, yeah, I've been here. Uh, 
been here 18 years staring at my 19th starting august 1st so i got here just in time for uh, katrina in 2005 is my first hurricane so wow i, I kind of almost like i'm from texas i go big or go home uh, <laughs> so but uh but no it's been it's been a good good ride and uh um, my wife is also from new york and uh she works for the natural science museum here in jackson uh, and the, uh, the state agency and, uh, yeah, we've made a good career in life of it here and don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. So oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, Lanny, we spent some time near Rochester. Yes, we did. And, uh, if you remember Charlie Alshimer mm-hmm. was from Bath, New York, I bet you know where yeah. that is. Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, I've camped in Bath, New York. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's uh there's a lot of big deer. Up a lot there. of whitetails. No doubt about it. H- have you got an area up there we could turkey hunt at them? Yeah. Send a brother um, a pen. You got any Onyx I, pens? I may know. I may know some areas. I also know some folks that grew up with my wife, who grew up in uh, uh, near Montezuma National Wildlife Refuge, right in the central part of New York, in the Finger Lakes, and they've got some very, very big deer. But I really doubt he's going to allow anyone on his place. <laughs> he's pretty protective wow. of those. Sounds those familiar. Butter. Yeah, it does. Yeah, 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 exactly. I could send you some pictures, but they're impressive. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could find something up there for you guys. Yeah, that's nice. New York is, uh, you know, once you get out of the city, it's a it's it really is. a beautiful state. Mm, that's right, no doubt, it really is. I will I will argue that the city is beautiful as well, just in a different way. Yeah, wow. well, and uh, it's it's Dudley. You Thumbs always up, take up the other side of everything, <laughs> Adam. I, you know, um, one of the things my daughter lived there for a little while, and we went and visited. Her. I would see birds dead at the base of b- buildings. When you're walking yes. around, I think those buildings are just. I mean, Lanny, you have birds flying to your windows. You get you were telling me about. I, I bet it happens in these major cities in a big way. It would have to. Uh, it does. Yeah, it can be a big, uh, big issue uh, year round, but particularly during migration. Um, but yeah, it's it's a big issue. Um, glass has gotten very popular uh, in in design. I'm not going to act like I'm. Uh, uh, an engineer by any means of, of that stretch, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out. I was just in Washington, D.C. last week for a urban wildlife conference, and we were all commenting since a lot of us are in that research uh, realm, um, especially a lot of my colleagues at that conference, that everywhere we walked around where we our hotel was, so about three blocks from uh, the White House, everything was glass. Whether it was a window or just the design of the wall of the building, it was all glass and all very much lighted, which can be uh, quite disorienting uh, for uh, migrating birds and just birds that are occupying the space, both in the daytime, but also uh, particularly at night, it can uh, disorient in a different way. So it's it's a it's a big issue. It takes out uh, roughly almost a billion birds, a half a billion birds on average uh, a year. Wow. The estimates. So. It's a big number. That's a lot of birds. Yeah, it is. And then you yeah. add feral cats. I think they're a big consumer of wild birds, too. Hmm. Yeah, even more so. Yeah, yeah. About uh, two, $2.4 And that's uh, that's a, like a decade-old estimate. So um, it's, it's quite a bit. So hmm. like three billion birds are getting taken out by glass and cats. And then you, you got little boys with BB guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah and then you add in like vehicles and other other things uh, that they can run into, and it really starts adding up. So, well, look, I've got one question. I want to establish a little bit of your credibility right off the bat here. I, uh, I want to ask go. you one question: <laughs> Can you tell us why owls hunt in pairs? Why owls hunt in pairs? Okay. Um, well, a lot of our... Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. No. <laughs> They're in cahoots. 
Oh, oh nice. yeah, here we go. Nice. Oh, okay. I thought that was <laughs> well. You get you would get along really well with my my students who are big on the dad jokes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I fall for it every time. So yeah, wasn't that like a South American Peruvian owl? Peruvian owl. Uh, Peruvian owls are hunting parish, but uh, yeah. anyway, very I, nice. I like that. Yeah, the, my my students will love listening to to this uh, with, with that starting off. That was good, very good. <laughs> Don't worry, he's got more. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm on my toes now. Yeah. yeah. Toes. All right, so I'm on a. I'm looking at Lanny. Yeah, Lanny, we always get sidetracked. It doesn't seem like you get enough questions. I'm gonna start well, with pre- you. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, for, you know. I, well, I live in a uh, uh, a river bottom is the best way to put it, and uh, a, uh, la- I guess it's been for two years now. Um, a- after spring turkey season, that's when I start paying attention to things other than turkeys. Uh, the the there's a, there are birds that started showing up in and la- and a couple years ago in particular, uh, a bird that we've identified as a summer tanager, a red tanager, um, mm-hmm. uh, began showing up in the spring, and um, he would come to our windows and peck on the windows and flutter against them. And then there was females out there with him and, and he's hanging out. Anyways, we got pretty familiar with the bird cause he would, you know, at daylight every morning, he was, he was knocking on the window pretty much, uh, got pretty entertaining. Well, the winter came and, you know, of course he was gone. Well, lo and behold, this spring, you know, he shows back up at the same time in the same place. So I guess what I'm asking is, um, can you help me understand those migration patterns? And is it possible that that's the same bird that's showing up in my house year after year? Yeah, I'll have to give you the state government and biologist answer on uh, confirming if that's the same one. The only way we'd be able to know that for sure is if it actually had a, a band on its leg and you were either able to capture it or actually see the numbers on it, which I can tell you I've banded enough of uh, passerines that they're uh, too small to see with the naked eye. But there's also other ways of putting color bands uh, hmm. on birds so we could visually identify that bird. So to answer that right up front, it could be, but we can't confirm it unless it's it's uh, been tagged um, and identified that way. Now, all that to say, I have caught like uh, uh, common yellow-throated uh, warblers, which are very common here and also in Pennsylvania when I was working uh, on my master's. I not only caught the same bird, but I caught the same bird in the same mist net that was in the exact same location, a total of nine meters in length. Wow. Basically on the same honeysuckle bush uh, on the same property the, the following year. So there's a decent chance that it very well could be. And what we call, we call that site fidelity, that the, the bird is just honed in on that spot. And it's pretty remarkable that birds that are neotropical migrants uh, that can go very long distances to South America, Central America, let alone survive and then fly all the way back the next year and literally be in the, in almost the exact same spot uh, within feet is uh, I think pretty remarkable. I have it is. a lot of, a lot of folks I give directions to that uh, even with all the, all of this and everything else of uh, phones and everything else that uh, we have can't, can't find their way out of a wet paper sack. So it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing what these little things can do. But um, but yeah, so it very well could could be that. But yeah, migration is a it's an amazing feat. Um, anything from you know the thing of a ruby throated hummingbird, which is literally if you're looking at your thumb, uh, average size is about the size of your your thumb as far as the size of the body. In fact, your thumb probably weighs more than the actual bird. And the fact that they're able to go one shot over the Gulf of Mexico, uh, let alone travel even farther and all the way north. Uh, 
um, past where I grew up um, is is just even as an ornithologist and trained ornithologist is just amazing uh, to think that something so small can can make that feat, just physically make it, but let alone. Yeah, go to the exact same spot. Let's just go to the same spot, but cognitively be able to work through the landscape and all the things that it runs into along the way is pretty, pretty remarkable. So how did, what, I mean, what are the, what aids them in their navigation? I mean, I believe, I believe, and I don't know, I'll have to catch him and put a band on him, I guess, to find yeah, out. Yeah. But yeah. I, I so, mean, it, we believe it's the same bird. And to your point, he is back in the exact same tree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised again. I can't, can't say that for a hundred percent. Um, that it is the same bird without that, but I wouldn't be surprised, uh, with that. We see a lot of, uh, uh, fidelity with that, but yeah. So how do they do it? Uh, how about we could say, let's start off with why they do it. Uh, That's always a question we try to get our students to answer is why put all this effort into something. And I get this question a a lot is one, how do they do it? But then really think about what would possess a critter to put that much energy into something, uh, on an annual basis, let alone one, but the whole species and then groups of species to move forward. Uh, and, the, and the answer to that is is pretty straightforward in the sense that they're taking advantage of resources that aren't available where they are in their wintering grounds. Um, so they are they are moving north to to expand into larger nesting uh, and more uh, qualified nesting uh, areas and also more resources as far as food resources go. But with that, obviously comes a huge cost, right? You, you got to make get it there. Yeah. You got to make it. And not only that, you got to make it back. Because if you don't make it back, you're not set up to take, you know, minus 20 degrees uh, in the Adirondack uh, mountains where I used to go at Boy Scout camp. You just, mm-hmm. you're not going to make it there either. So it's a huge trade-off uh, to be able to do that. But again, the number one goal of all living things is to what? Pass on that genetic, yeah. that genetic code to the next Sick. generation. So they they make that quote unquote make that calculation uh, over all these eons to to do that. Um, so that that's the main reason why they're doing it. And 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 some people are like, well, why do cardinals not do that? Well, not everyone takes the same path in life, right? Unintended. So I can do dad jokes a little bit too, but uh, <laughs> you know, so not really good ones. So catch you off guard, obviously. But um, so so we have some resident birds. We have some birds that uh, we call short migrate uh, short migrators. Um, kind of moderate and mid uh, uh, length migration. And then we have the long distance migrators, the warblers, uh, things like the Arctic turn that literally go from one end of the globe to the other, um, you know, for a month and a half and the turn around and go back uh, all for nesting season, which is pretty remarkable. We have uh, Northern Cardinals that literally won't leave your backyard. Um, We have some woodpecker species out West and other species out West that literally just come down in elevation. We've hmm. hunted out west a lot or spent time out west. You know, it's pretty brutal in those higher elevations, but they come down in the fall to get into the valleys and that's their migration. It may be all of two miles, but they've dropped down, you know, eight, seven, 8,000 feet where it's actually livable, uh, um, you know, for the for the winter months. Um, he, closer here to home, I get a lot of calls and questions on where did all my robins go? Well, when I was back in New York, a lot of those robins came down here. Well, they don't necessarily go too far here. If you hunt enough in bottomland hard, hardwood uh, areas, you see a lot of grackles, robins during the wintertime. Oh, yeah. But you don't, 
you don't see them in your front yard like you do in the spring, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, early March shows up or a warm February here in, in, in Mississippi, and all of a sudden the robins show back up in your yard. So they didn't they just shifted habitats. So there, there's a nature center in my in, in our uh, town in Clinton, and literally you can see the robins in there in the in the in the winter, and then they will literally come out on the lawns right next to it in January. So again, don't know if it's the exact same birds, but they can literally just shift habitats to where it looks like they've gone. But that is considered a migration in the sense they've shifted habitat for a little bit, and then they come back. So there's all different types of migration uh, with that. Uh, so it, it, it's a really a neat approach on on how all the different critters figure out when critters figure out how to do this hmm. but um how they do it is is amazing in itself um it really starts with the physical being i mean a, a bird is just incredibly efficient everything about a bird you guys have enough birds up on the wall there there you've cleaned birds you've spent uh, time with game birds they're just they're extremely tough and they're extremely efficient. So how do birds fly, right? They're, they're, they're light. They're light and they're efficient. So they have hollow bones, but they have strong bones. So that's number one. The other thing is they breathe a lot more efficiently than you and I. <laughs> mm. So we have about a 2% efficiency rate. Most birds are 90%, close to 100% efficiency, meaning all the oxygen they take in in one breath, they're pretty much getting everything they can out of it. We are horrible. Even the really, really like the Lance Armstrongs, with or without, uh, <laughs> with uh, or without enhancing. Yeah, without enhancing, you may be in the you know four or five percent. Most of us, especially me, since I'm kind of scared of running, it's probably around two percent. Um, I'll walk anyone to death, but running, you're going to get me. Um, but um, <laughs> so they're just their, their system, the respiratory system is just so efficient. So that's how you get a hummingbird the size of your thumb can make a 600 mile one, one shot across the Gulf of Mexico uh, fighting the weather and the waves and, and wind and things like that um, because they are so efficient uh, with breathing. Um, they're also very efficient in storing energy on their, on their bodies. Uh, they can basically store it all over their bodies in different ways. So they have a great gas tank also with it, but how do they actually mentally figure it out? There's, there's a, a research on it but there's also some theories on it one is they use use the earth's magnetic field hmm. there are also some evidence and research showing that they they use uh, stars and other celestial uh, um, imagery that they can use to navigate that way and then the one that's probably the most concrete in the sense that makes sense to to us is they they use landforms so that's why if you ever look at, if you Google on your phone, migratory bird paths, look at where a lot of those paths are. And we've actually been able to confirm a lot of those paths uh, with fine detail now that we have GPS uh, equipment on birds that are small enough they can go on these birds. And it's confirmed roughly, uh, and in some cases very accurately, these paths. So we're on the Mississippi Flyway, right? Well, it's called the Mississippi Flyway, not for our state, right? It's the Mississippi Flyway because of, of the river, the huge river. And when you fly in a plane, you can see it. So the birds actually can use uh, waterways, mountain ranges, coastlines, uh, things like that to aid their navigation also. So it's a combination of all those things that allow them to be able to actually navigate. And then it's their engine and the structure or their tires, if you want to say, the frame of their car that allows all that to happen 
and, and get them there successfully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot. Of, a lot of them don't make it. A lot of them don't make it. So. Wow. So uh, typically if, if a bird left Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, hummingbird to fly across to the Yucatan, how long would that take? Uh, a lot of cases they'll do that in a night uh, or two days max, and it'll be straight flight because there's uh, unless you <laughs> hit crazy. the barrier islands, you're taking a dip and you ain't coming out of it. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of birds. Um, you've probably heard the word stopover habitat uh, is, is is a really important uh, type of of habitat, especially for birds. So, say you're coming from uh, in the this was you know tying back to my my start of my story there with Katrina. Um, well, there was a lot of concern after Katrina um, that with all the damage to the coast, that when um, the, the uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds were going to be coming back in the spring, they were going to be coming back to nothing, right? And when they come and they finally land on the barrier islands or on, you know, in Biloxi, Ocean Springs, that area, everything was denuded, right? There was no no vegetation left. So there was a huge campaign to put out as many hummingbird feeders as we could, even though with all the destruction, the human destruction, in addition to that, because when those birds, I mean, they're really gambling. I mean, they're shooting across 600 miles and they are coming in on fumes, maybe less than fumes. They ain't got much time to regroup or they're not going to make it through the next couple of days. So how they're able to do it is they literally fill that tank and then like you know you used to shake your truck a little bit the burp it to get a little bit more in there they fill that thing up and and shoot for it um but they're also taking other things into consideration they're not going to come from the south and head north and when when you've got a northern cold front coming the ones that do don't make it so they don't get the breed again <laughs> okay they made a bad choice and things <laughs> bad things happen they go plunk Okay, so a little protein snack for something in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so they're also able to sense barometric pressure um, and pick up uh, weather patterns. And that's why you'll get these huge pushes of uh, southerly migration when we get a cold front that comes through Mississippi. And they'll push across and use that that backwind to push them, uh, help them, assist them ac- across the Gulf of Mexico. The same thing in, in, in the, the springtime either a southerly wind or at least not a, a strong headwind of, of a northern front coming down, they'll know to shoot the gap and get up there so they're not going into a headwind the whole way because they won't make it if they if they hit a headwind. So um, it's it's just amazing how they can do it. That is. It really is. It really is. Dudley, what you got? Well, um, you were just talking about hummingbird feeders, and uh, we were semi-arguing earlier about, uh, <laughs> you know, being that we're – wildlife managers um can can feeders like backyard feeders can they help a a population of birds uh or is it you know more of a hindrance we like to look at birds in our yard and attract them but uh are there other things we can do is is feeding birds bad or is it okay yeah that's kind of a broad question but yeah i know and this is this is something that always comes up because i get a lot of folks you know, as biologists, we'll, we'll sometimes talk out of both sides of our mouth, like, you know, feeding feeding wildlife in general is not good. You know, we don't want to create a petting zoo in most cases uh, with this um, for disease issues, uh, human-wildlife conflict issues. But then on the other side of the mouth, we have publications, including ones that I've been involved with and, and helped write, put together, and give presentations on bird feeding, bird feeders. Well, how, how is that different? 
you know, than, <laughs> than this. So to answer your question directly, yes, bird feeding um, is helpful uh, to um, wild birds. Um, as with anything, you know, again, being a state employee, it depends on how, how that's applied. Um, we have recommendations on specific feeder types and specific feed that we would recommend that would most be most beneficial at certain times of the year for different species. Um, but it also comes with some responsibility. Um, and I know this is probably going to tie into another uh, hot button topic, uh, <laughs> outdoor cats here in a moment. Sure. So, um, so what I try to do when I talk to garden groups or anyone on the phone or folks like yourself that ask me this question is bird feeding is great as long as you're responsible with it. And there's multiple layers to this, and I'll keep it brief. First is if you're backyard bird feeding because you're looking to set up a petting zoo, then I strongly suggest you not do it. So we're, we're talking about putting bird feeders out. We're not talking about hand feeding birds in the sense of teaching blue jays or other things to come down and take it from your hand. That never ends well for the for the animal. Um, we, you know, I know you've had some of my colleagues on about other predators and black bears and things like that. It never ends well for the animal, even the smaller birds. Okay. Um, so you got that. The other thing is you don't want to set them up for an ecological trap and that's a fancy word. And I got to use it every once in a while to earn my keep here. Um, but, uh, ecological trap in the sense of a, a couple different ways. One is we I highly encourage people that have a lot of outdoor cats or have a lot of outdoor cats around them to either be smart with what their placement of feeders or not to feed at all because it can pull them into a trap to where uh, birds or even, or, or sorry, uh, cats or even um, uh, domestic dogs can can get a hold of a bird, uh, especially a dog that's really birdie can uh, have a lot of fun with that. Um, and just the fact, even if they don't get the actual animal, the stress of being chased all the time can be a real problem. So, that's two big examples of ecological trap. But the other thing is, too, is to make sure we're not setting up these feeders to where they can encourage window strikes that we just talked about at the beginning. Um, and also make sure that you're cleaning the feeders and, and have healthy, clean feed out there because there's disease transmission potential. And there's also rotten seed issues that can cause issues with birds. Um, but particularly because bird feeders, we get a lot of use in the winter months. It's really important that people keep a cleaning schedule uh, based on how much use it's getting and keep fresh seed in there because it can really harm them than it does um, uh, help them. If that makes sense. Okay. Well, thanks. And uh, I've got another, and, and again, this is somewhat broad, but what are some things uh, if we're into looking at birds and, and we're amateur bird nerds, what are some things we can do in our backyard aside from putting out a feeder? Uh, and, and, you know, I know there's a lot of different species, but, but what are some yeah. of the basics we can do to, to keep and hold birds? Yeah. So other things you can do in your backyard. And actually I've tried to uh, employ more in my backyard just with having two young kids travel a lot for work is uh, to encourage as many native plants as possible. So either naturally popping up in your yard um, or, or, uh, actually purchasing native plants or, you know, close horticultural varieties of that. So plants like American beauty berry and, um, um, even some of, uh, uh, the holly bushes, uh, things that provide multiple aspects of the key, key things of, of habitat. So you need, you need food, water, shelter, and space, right? Those key things. So if you can get a plant that provides both food and shelter, 
aka foliage or branches and nest in or just have cover from the the elements any plant that can provide two of those would be excellent uh, to try and include in that so if if, if uh, folks in mississippi or outside of mississippi go to your local extension service uh, or you can go to mississippi state university extension service and just type in backyard habitat and we have a publication with all the lists uh, for mississippi specifically but also a lot of those plants would apply in the southeast in general uh, that you can uh, put in uh, your backyard, both for hummingbird, very, very specific for hummingbirds, but also other birds too. So that's a huge one is is, is just putting native plants in. Uh, it's a lot less maintenance over time. Uh, you don't have to worry about, oh, we're going to be gone for two weeks. We need someone to come uh, put feed in the feeders or clean the feeders. Um, so native plants is a really good way to go. Um, the other thing that's real simple is having a water supply. Just having a bird bath, straight up bird bath. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use the the plastic thing that goes under the pots, you know, that you can get from any of your box stores. Yeah. I don't spend $150 on a big fancy one. Um, you know, I, I buy several of those 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 uh pans basically. Um, you can spray paint them if you want, you know, and let them let them dry and then fill them with water and place them all throughout um your backyard in that way, as long as you put them higher than your chocolate lab can drain them for you like mine <laughs> it works out great so really water and, and native plants is really really helpful okay i like the idea of fixing up your back backyard uh w- with the native plants and then oh yeah you know and and different birds prefer different seeds yeah and, mm-hmm. and uh yes. and i my wife really enjoys feeding the birds and we've had feeders going for a long time mm-hmm. platform and hanging and and it, ju- it seems like our birds have gotten to the point where they won't hardly eat anything but a sunflower. They are just really, really picky. But yeah. our country birds out there at my little farm, they'll eat whatever they I put out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, that's, you, you hit the nail on the head, and there's a specific type of uh, sunflower. Um, it's not the, the, the striped sunflower. There's, I don't have bla- it's a little black oil sunflower. Yep. Black oil sunflower seed this is what I recommend. You can buy it straight up just in the bag. Almost, it, It's the perfect in the sense that it's the perfect size and the shell can be opened by almost all species that are going to use feeders. So from your little chickadees all the way up to your bigger birds and the, the crude fat, carbohydrates and everything the bird need, is, is it's, it couldn't be more perfect uh, in that little, that little seed. Um, the other key thing is you have less to clean up. You may have the hulls, but you're not going to have all the millets and everything else that are in those those mixes. Um, which again, if you have a lab like mine that likes to eat those, you get you know you get colorful poo for a couple couple days after. That. So, um, I'm assuming he keeps it down, you know. But uh, um, so I, I strongly recommend just buying the the large 50 pound sacks of the the black oil sunflower seeds it's a little bit more expensive, but you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck because as you witnessed, they literally will kick the other stuff out of the way to get to those. So you're literally throwing money on the ground, yeah. which can, you know, have rodent problems and stuff you got to clean up with. So just focus on, on the prime rib or the ice cream, as they say. We, uh, you know, Lanny, we've, uh, my wife kind of keeps a list of all the birds she sees. And it's a pretty extensive list. I don't, I don't know it, but, but she's this particular spring, she's had some, if I'm pronouncing it right, gross beaks. Yes. Yep. The rose breast, rose breasted gross beaks. Yes. Yep. 
And that if, that got her real excited. So I, are they oh, common? Oh man, I, I get I get real excited uh, about those when they hit my feeders. I had a couple this year. Um, they they seem to come in eruptions for some folks. I have some colleagues here uh, in and around Jackson, and they got they had them for two or three weeks just hanging out at their feeders. They're a beautiful bird. If you Google rose-breasted mm-hmm. duck, rosebeak, there's a couple different species, but the rose-breasted one is the one that's best known, especially in the eastern part of the United States. Beautiful bird. Got a white kind of ivory uh, bill, uh, black checkered through white, and it's got this big uh, rose red uh, chevron going across its chest. I mean, it sticks out, and it's a good sized bird. And the females will look similar, but they're they're brown, but all the same patterning, and they don't have the the, the rose uh, breasted uh, chevron. Um, but uh, I also have a nice story with them when I was misnetting birds uh, in Pennsylvania. I had a rule with my techs to let me know what was in the bag. So I didn't get uh, chomped on too bad. Well, they thought it'd be funny. We had a school group out there one day and my one tech who always thought it was fun to, you know, to poke at his boss, um, handed me a bag and didn't tell me, you know, watch out, you know, and I put my hand in the bag and there was a gross beak in there. And that joker latched on right between the webbing between my fingers Mm. and immediately the bag started filling up with, you know, the cotton bag started sucking up the blood that was coming out of the bite. And uh, I'm standing in front of a bunch of, you know, seven and eight year olds trying not to be a Yankee and drop some Yankee words um, and try (laughs) to slowly get the bird off my hand without freaking him out or killing the bird. But uh, yeah, he had a he had a lot of extra uh, unwanted duties uh, after that. <laughs> I bet he did. <laughs> I have a special place in my heart for rose-breasted grosbeaks. But they're actually their their uh, their beak is strong enough to where they can actually crack black uh, cherry tree pits. Wow, of, of cherries! So they're incredible in their strength. Yeah, wow. I've tried to crack a few of those, and it it is tough. So <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, you've you've been here long enough. I bet you've encountered this. You've seen these birds. But uh, uh, fifteen or twenty years ago, we started seeing these Eurasian collared doves yes, start yeah. started popping up, and we first mm-hmm. heard all kind of rumors that they'll push morning doves out of their nest. I don't know if that's true or not. But can you tell us about, a little bit about these birds and you know it, some of these rumors that we hear about them? Yeah, I can't. I can't uh, pull it off the top of my head as far as if they uh, if they do that. But a lot of times, uh, you know, either invasive or non-native species will displace other other uh, native species. But I, I can uh, I can attest to that. When I moved here, uh, I'm right on Heinz Community College campus, and we're, we're actually on their agricultural complex, which is a big hot spot for morning doves and Eurasian collar doves. Uh, and I can remember when the first first time I saw it popping up here, and now. That's all I see out here in the parking lot. In fact, it's probably defecating on my on my uh, truck as we speak, <laughs> um, as they commonly do. But um, yeah, there's probably when I just walked in a little while ago, there was probably half a dozen in the parking lot on the lines and everything. So they, they've gotten very common uh, throughout the state to to where you know, 18 years ago they were they were present, but not as common for sure. Yeah, I think Lanny. I think if you look forward. 15 or 20 years, they're going to be a, pro- a really a big problem. Hmm. The, your, the, excuse me, the Eurasian dove? The Eurasian collared. Eurasian collared dove. Well, as yeah, long we, as they taste good, we'll be good to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, that's the answer all invasive species. As that's long right. As it, tastes it tastes good, it's on. I believe they do. So <laughs> we'll um, take care of them. Yeah, we had some. Uh, I was out on the walking around on our local refuge uh, last summer and noticed some of those 
whistling ducks that oh we yeah don't, there's some out of my house oh, yeah. and yeah. i've been reading about them lately that they they come further north than they used to yes um, yeah the black black belly whistling ducks yeah correct. they've become more present in the delta you used to get lucky to see them every once in a while in the uh, borrow pits here and there but um yeah i've heard more and more of, of expanding into the state and, and people being uh, hunters being su- successful at harvesting some here and there too so oh wow Mm-hmm. So as a, a, a guy, I'm sure when you were coming along and getting, uh, going through college, learning about birds, you had to understand their songs and be able to recognize their songs. And it's, it, it, I think that's a badge of honor with you guys to be able to hear a bird and look up and know what it, what, what that song is. What do you think about Mer, the Merlin ID app? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty incredible actually. Um, yes, it is. It is a badge of honor. Um, to, to be able to do that. Um, it, it's, it's challenging. I, I will say I'm actually doing breeding bird surveys as we, as we speak, I'll be doing one tomorrow morning, um, along the Natchez trace. And then next week I'll be down in Florida with, uh, the park service helping them with their breeding bird surveys. Um, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I, I think Merlin is great. Um, it's a very intuitive app, um, that really, I think has, uh, democratized, uh, even more so uh, bird watching. You know, we used to give one of these these books that are like behind me, and you know, it's basically the Bible of of, of bird watching and hand it to you. And it, it's in all these these uh, scientific family orders. And unless you're trained up on it or really dive into it, it can be really really intimidating. Um, whereas Merlin is is set up just so much more intuitively in the sense of looking at. The size of the bird, the general shape of the bird, and the kind of the basic categories that most birds or most what most people know, and then it takes where your location is, and it just it brings it down. So it just speeds up the learning process so much. Um, and I think any of my colleagues would be lying to say that you know because sometimes even folks that are trained like myself, you know, you can get a tough one out in the field. Um, and it can be very helpful in confirming uh, a, a species too. So I, I think it's a great a great uh, technology and you know, not saying this just because I come from New York, but the Cornell lab of ornithology puts out some fantastic, fantastic um, uh, technology. In fact, you were talking about migration earlier. There's another um, project they're involved with called bird uh, Birdcast. Um, so you can actually go on there and, and uh, put in Mississippi and it will, it will show you all the migratory birds and when they've come through, but you can watch it real time and you can actually put the, the like a weather weather app. You can put it in motion, and you can watch those birds migrate over time between all the different data that's feeding that. Um, it's it's pretty remarkable to, to, to play the time lapse and see those birds migrate through and then come back down through. It's it's really neat. I use it in presentations all the time. That that's that's really interesting. And and Lanny, at it right now. Lanny's trying to pull it up right now. But, oh yeah. So have you? I know you have. Uh, the, the sometimes in the that there's a the radar on the news will yep. will and it'll show these bird migrate. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm struggling for words here, but it looks like a it's just a flare up of uh, but it it ends yeah. up being birds. Can you yeah, expl- can yeah, you explain that a little bit? Yeah, um, I don't know a ton on it because you got to be really smart to understand it. But actually, we have one of the leaders. Uh, he's now retired, but Frank Moore with USM. Uh, in Hattiesburg, uh, he was really, really involved with that when it uh, really started to come in development in the last uh, 20, 25 years. 
Um, he's, he's retired, uh, but I think he's professor emeritus with, uh, university of Southern Mississippi and still, still, uh, active. Um, but yeah, it's basically, there's just so much bird mass at the right, uh, uh, space, uh, to where the, where, where that technology is working, that the, that, that technology can actually be, uh, pick, pick the movements up and we can actually see bird eruptions, you know, migration eruptions coming through and coming out. And for the longest time, it, you know, it was confusing meteorologists like what is going on here? You know, well, why all of a sudden we've got like pop-up thunderstorms in the middle of the night, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. So yeah. it's a, it's a really neat technology that they can use in combination now with uh, another Cornell, um, uh, program eBird, which I'm sure you've discussed, which feeds Merlin, with personal observations people put in their phone in combination with this other technology that we really can fine tune how these species are moving through the landscape without actually putting our hands on them, which is, which is huge when it comes, although it takes some of the sexiness out of being a biologist, but we can, we'll, we would never have enough of us to actually yeah. trap enough birds uh, to be able to put, equipment on them so this technology is really incredible in what it can do right now it's saying there's over 20 million birds in flight right now that's pretty crazy and it's birdcast.com yeah birdcast well yeah birdcast i think birdcast.info i think yeah, is, that's from it dot info that's fascinating and it's, it, it's fed by cornell i think colorado state and a couple other institutions that feed feed a larger data sets into it it's pretty pretty amazing stuff yeah it is it's there's nothing else like it um, it's really remarkable what they can do. Yeah, it's be- there. You go. That was one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ha- have you ever seen a whippoorwill in the daytime? A whippoorwill? Uh, yes, um, I, I have, but I've only seen one. And when I was actually out in the field doing some research, they are the most camouflaged bird of all. They're yes. camo, that's and, for sure. And it, and is it true that they sit sideways on the limb? Uh, yeah, they, they, they tuck down pretty tight, pretty tight, uh, on the limb. So, so. St- instead of sitting, you know, like that, they sit like oh, that. Oh, they sit with yeah. the limb. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I mean, I've never seen one in the daytime. You think about all the times we've been in the woods, you think you would see one. You know, we saw some we saw flying. Them, yeah, we see them flying right at, at dawn. Day, yeah, yeah. At daybreak, we see I've them. I've walked up on them and, you know, Chuck Will's widows, uh, at night with my headlamp on. And mm. you can get really close to them before they... Spook. They just yep. sit there. So what I wanted to ask, another question I wanted to ask, I got a bunch, and Mac, I'm fixing to come to you for a question, so get ready. So, But c- help me understand this, because this really amazed me, and I may, I'm easily amazed by nature, and I may have gotten this wrong. But I heard that the black-capped chickadee, who is one of the last birds to migrate, even if he migrates, but that he has the ability to, in the wintertime, it's like his brain enlarges, and he can remember hundreds of places that he's hidden nuts or seeds so that he can survive. But then in the summertime, he doesn't need access to all that, and it's like his brain— He just forgets about it. Yeah, but, but when he needs it, he's <laughs> got about it. it. it, it can you—am I getting that right, or maybe I've oversimplified it? Or No, um, yeah, I can't speak to that uh, specifically. I just—, just not pulling up on, on th- that specific example in, in the recall, but um, birds do have, uh, particularly ones that do stay, resident birds like black-capped chickadees, uh, especially other northern species that really, really, uh, if you want to put a human component on it, have to focus to survive through the winter. 
um, they, they have a lot of uh, strategies and capabilities, um, not only the, the memorization, if you want to call it, to, to where their, their food caches are, um, but also just their, their other physiological uh, attributes of controlling uh, exposure to the cold. Uh, so one that I think of um, is there like shorebirds in the winter are, are able, and, and, and in the summer, in some cases, you know, a lot of people see shorebirds standing up on one leg um, and think they're just, they're resting or hanging out. Well, in a lot of cases, they're actually uh, thermal regulating themselves with that. So if it's really cold out, they're keeping one foot down in, in the water because they got to stand, right? Um, and they they keep the other one up here so they don't expose that exposed limb. But they're also able to shunt down, okay, shunt down the blood flow into that leg. And basically the one that they're standing on, just keep enough blood flow in there to keep it alive. So they're, cause if you're, if it's just like, uh, if, if you're running, uh, uh, coolant through, right? If you run that, that blood through and you're running all of it through, all that heat's getting sucked out of it every time it goes through the system in that cold water. So they're able to shunt it down just enough. So where it's not getting frostbit and then they'll switch and bring that other one up and bring it back to life and control their temperature loss, uh, in that way. Other things they do is like, uh, again, shorebirds in the cold, they, you'll see them, they'll be in those groups and they'll position into the wind and the guy up front will take the run of the wind coming across the beach. And then the other ones will, they'll migrate to the back, uh, pun intended there and, uh, right into the middle of the group to try and, you know, stay together to keep warm that way. And, and they'll share that responsibility to try and stay, stay alive in those really cold exposed areas. So, I know it's not your chickadee example. I can't pull that one out of my recall. I guess I'm getting older, but uh, um, it's just it's really amazing what they can do on both extremes, both on the cold side and and on the extreme heat side, and how they can thermal regulate to try and stay alive. Wow, they're, interesting they're stuff, Mac. You, I know you got a question. I do. Uh, so when I think about just local native birds like the mockingbird or the kildee, they each, you know, the mockingbird mimics and the kildee does the broken wing uh, thing. Mm -hmm. What are some other interesting traits uh, or mechanisms that birds that are in Mississippi or the southeast that common occurrences like that that are just specific to the bird? Uh, that's a really good question. Um so, uh, some other, I guess, kind of just odd, odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's man. I tell you what. I mean, that that's and I'm not saying this in an assaulting way, but this is usually what would come from like an eight year old and stump in front of a. <laughs> I, I've got a four year old. So yeah. I yeah. answer those questions. So the mockingbird, we see them out on the grass, and they just yes. kind of do yeah. their wings up. Yeah. What are they doing when they do that? So a lot of times they're providing, uh, they're, they're creating shade and trying to, trying to, when they're, they're, they're hawking for insects, basically when they're trying to uh, do some of that. And that was actually an example I was going to use with some of our heron species. You may see them like, uh, little blues or the great blue herons and getting back to photographers. A lot of times we'll get that photo where they're, they're on the edge of the, and I'm doing this for folks that aren't watching at home. <laughs> I'm mimicking it out on, on screen here, but they'll cup those wings around and actually cover their head like this and create shade, almost like they're a post or a limb so they can actually see into the water better, but also encourage their prey to come up underneath them. And then they'll boom, they'll dart down like that. Uh, so that that's a, a kind of cool thing. Um, some of the, I haven't seen it a lot here, but uh, I was just talking about this with, I can't remember where I was, 
But, you know, crows are really interesting, too. Uh, they're super smart. Uh, often don't get a lot of credit for how smart. Um, Wicked uh, smart. All, they're really yeah, smart. all the crow species are. Um, and in some cases where they will, um, you know, pick up nuts, things like that, and they will actually test out how high they need to go up to drop it on pavement to crack things open or, or uh, you know, if they're looking at, uh, you know, mollusks, things like that. So they can actually... You can see them testing it out to see how far they need to go up to drop the thing so it will crack so they don't have to waste energy trying to break the thing open. Uh, so that that's an, another uh, a neat one. Uh, the killdeer one is great. That's kind of ubiquitous uh, throughout its range, the broken the broken wing uh, uh, attribute. I actually just saw one uh, as we were talking out the window here looking at the parking lot out of my office. Very common Uh you get that, you know, I, I'm also a baseball coach for my kids, so we often have to shoo them off the field, you know, when the kids are running around too. But, um, yeah, I think the heron one would be another one. It's not necessarily just specific to Mississippi, uh, but it's really neat to see it just – it's like they're almost going into superhero mode. You know, it kind of reminds me of some of the Batman scenes um, on how they how they do that. Isn't there a bird that uses uh, like a little piece of a stick to get insects out of a – put you know what and then there's one that will put insects it kills like on a thorn or a piece piece of barbed oh oh oh, yeah 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 yes yeah that's a very that's a good one yeah that's uh our loggerhead shrike okay Uh, we'll do that and actually i have a great photo i should send to you folks so i work on a lot of urban wildlife uh, uh projects now um and we were actually at one of our parks here in jackson um, and it was probably about February, you know, real wet time of month. And I was with my graduate student. We were turning out to checking cameras in our in our parks. And I stopped and she's like, are you all right? And I'm, I'm look, just looking off like, oh, man, this is great. And I, I know she thought I was nuts. But getting to your point, it wasn't a stick, but it was the fencing around a baseball field, you know, where they, they twist it and it's got the sharp ends mm-hmm. protruding up so you don't climb over it or try to at least reduce you to climb over. And there was crawfish heads and bodies the whole length of the of that fence and i said do you see that and she really thought i'd lost my mind i got out and pointed out i said there is a loggerhead shrike in this area because it's literally it's a lot of people will call them butcher birds uh but literally had all its prey staked out on that fence and it was crawfish because there was a low spot right there that it was picking off so um yeah that's a great that's a great example uh uh, northern shrikes will do that also up, up in the northern part of the country Wow, fascinating! That 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 really is. There's nothing cuter than a little um than a three or four little killdeers, yeah, running around. We have them out here in the parking lot. And went back one time. Uh, y'all always wonder why I have copper on a leash. Well, a year or two into it, he doesn't really need a leash to walk to my truck. But a killdee ran out in front of him and started toward the the road out in front of us and of course you know she was dropping that wing and he was at, he was hot after her and ever since then i've i've put him on a leash when i walk out there so yeah yeah it did did its job distracted him from from the nest so so what is there like a family of birds that's you know your your favorite that you enjoy studying I know a lot. A lot of bird watchers have certain, yeah. you know, families yeah. or whatever that they that they follow. I've got a buddy that's a warbler nerd. Yeah, yeah. Mo- most most experienced birders really nerd out about the warblers. Um, they're they're kind of the cream of the crop. Often the ones that a lot of people are missing to fill out their bird list. You mentioned your wife keeps a list of all the ones in her backyard. A lot of people have backyard lists or trip lists. 
Um, a lot of serious birders, including myself, will have a life list. Um, I just had a buddy of mine that just went over, I think, 650 species of bird that he's seen, uh, you know, in, in North America. So uh, people get real serious about them. Some people have a world list. Those people also tend to have a Learjet available to them. But um, <laughs> um, people get real, real serious about this uh, stuff. And I used to be real, real serious. But, you know, having kids and uh, young kids in my 40s uh, kind of moderated a lot of my activities. <laughs> That'll do <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. But um, um, I still enjoy it. But probably um, maybe not a family, but my favorite bird um, is the Blackburnian warbler. Um, which is up up north, but if you Google Blackburnian and warbler and and look at the male in in spring and summer, I, I think you'll see why he's one of my favorites. Um, it really looks looks like the sun is either rising or, or setting uh, on its. Uh, oh yeah, he's a good looking bird. And, and front. Yeah, it's it's not one you hear a lot of, especially in the south because they push through here pretty quick. Um, but it's always been my 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 favorite. I remember the first one I saw in the Adirondacks uh, back in New York. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful bird. So good, good eye candy. But um, yeah, as far as like waterfall, one that I've always uh, wanted uh, and I missed twice when I was out with my friend in California was a cinnamon teal, which is mm. another one of my favorites. They're beautiful. We, yeah, uh, they are. Yeah. When I was younger, somebody in my duck camp uh, on the Mississippi Flyway looked yeah. up and got a cinnamon teal. And I've, I've yeah. never seen one. That was the first yeah. time I'd ever seen one. And and haven't since. Yeah. But, oh, I can still I can still hear my buddy saying, Rocky, here's it, here's a cinnamon, here's a cinnamon, and instantly going from being elated to crying after I missed on the first shot <laughs> and the second shot, not even a chance. As you if you've hunted teal at all, you know they can embarrass you as bad as a dove can embarrass you. So mm-hmm. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, beautiful, beautiful birds. But yeah, those are probably my top two favorites. I okay. Wow. Well, I tell you what, this has been interesting. I, I've, there's a couple other things I wanted to make sure we just touched on. Uh, yeah. And, and these guys, Lanny, want to make sure you, everybody get a yeah, chance to ask yeah. all their questions. But I wanted to ask you, how is the avian flu? Um, Seems like this year we're here and like it's been, it, or it was worse than it typically has been. And just wanted to get your, is it impact these little birds that we're talking about? Um. Yeah, it it, it can affect different groups uh, uh, more than more than others. Uh, we hear a lot of uh, avian flu, particularly in our waterfowl. Obviously, um, it was a big issue this year. Obviously, in in our commercial industries, um, uh, that you heard um, with that. Uh, I have not seen what the projection is going to be for over this winter uh, with it, but typically. Um, we, you know, the monitoring will, will start taking place and hunters aid in that uh, by offering, um, uh, being requested or offering their their uh, quarry to be be swabbed at the, at the check stations. Um, I have several friends out west in California and Alaska, and they, they're a lot more involved with it because typically there are a lot of monitoring stations up in Alaska because it will typically come over and migrating waterfall uh, often will be one of the sources uh, to bring it over to this continent or the new, the new strain. Um, but uh, as of right now, I, I, I don't know the current status uh, of, of where we are, but yes, last year was a pretty, pretty tough year. But, but does it affect the, the little birds, the tough to tip mouses and those kind of birds? Yeah, uh, it does to a point, but not to the level like we see it in waterfowl. Uh, and some of the other diseases we see in waterfowl, and some of that is just their their congregation uh, habitats, and then also just um, 
uh, being in, in concentrated areas and in, in water impoundments and things like that. It's just not all the vectors are necessarily there, but that's another reason uh, some other diseases too that are associated with like house finches, things like that. Um, another good reason if you're, you're uh, providing feeders to routinely wash those feeders, if not weekly, every two weeks or based on how much usage they're getting. If you start to see feces and other things piling up on your purchase of your feeders, then what we can do as far as residential homeowners that are bird feeding is clean, clean those feeders. And in some cases, in some cases, it's best to just take the feeders down for a while uh, and let it, let it rest and let nature take its course and, and, and let things break down in the environment. Or the other option, if you have a big enough yard in, an, in another spot, is to move the feeder to another spot so you don't have years and years of, of feces and, and spoiled um, uh, seed in the same spot. Kind of let it rest and move around uh, that way. So that, that, that's something that someone can do in their own backyard. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And then would you take just a minute, and uh, because I think we may have we, – we've got a few listeners, not many, but um, – w- w- not everybody knows about the ivory build woodpecker yeah. and that story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, could, if you could just touch base a little bit on that. And then can you share what you've heard? It seems like recently somebody has been uh, saying that they're, they've are they spotted some. Yeah. Um, so everyone probably remembers it. It was in the first couple of years that I moved here. I believe it was 2006. There was a, a spotting by um, some qualified folks uh she caused a huge uh, interest um they designed a whole festival around the ivory wood, uh, ivory bill woodpecker uh and 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 towns and uh i believe it was Searcy, arkansas if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. i actually went to one of the initial uh meetings there uh cornell lab of ornithology uh was heavily involved with that with some other institutions us fish and wildlife service obviously um, so the ivory bill woodpecker is believed, uh, at the very least, endangered, if not extinct, uh, here. Uh, with with uh, populations also in Cuba and here, um, a lot of different uh, reasons for that extinction, and a lot of it's this habitat uh, loss and destruction over time. Um, but yeah, so there was about three or four years where they were, everyone was pretty hot and bothered, uh, as they say, uh, about finding potentially finding or confirming. An existing pair uh, in the Arkansas swamps, I believe, along the White River, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah. Um, and it got to a point where they just confirm, couldn't confirm it beyond of the initial reported sightings um, and possible recordings that they had. So this recently came out. This is actually this this research site. The paper just published uh, back in April. And if people are interested in looking at it. Um, it's not really hard to consume as far as, you know, it's not just chock full of models and P values. Uh, it's more simple for folks like myself also. Um, it's actually called the multiple lines of evidence suggests the persistence of ivory billed woodpecker. And it's in ecology and evolution. If you just Google ivory billed woodpecker, the, the articles come up with them. Several of them actually provide live links, open links that you can access the article and you can actually see the imagery that they're referring to. So, um, I talked to a couple of my colleagues about this uh, recently, um, and I think the feeling is very, very cautiously optimistic, um, but kind of still feeling, and maybe that's still some of the hangover from the last time we went through this, 
that uh, there definitely there's a methodology to this. Over 10 years of, of information went into the study using uh, cameras, drones, uh, and uh, a product called uh, AudioMOS, which is just a, a small uh, noise recording device. And they provide some decent evidence for it and also some personal uh, from trained scientists sightings and drawings uh, in the same area. Unfortunately, there's not a feather or there's not a there's not a very, very clear image. Uh, if you look at that article, there's several that they're trying to tie to older imagery to try and show a relationship with it. So um, I think there's some cautious optimism there. Um, but you know, there was a lot of, I hate to say negative fallout with the last one. Um, you know, that town uh, really invested a lot of uh, Brinkley, Arkansas was the name of the town. Um, they invested a lot into it and they're very passionate about uh, their efforts with that. So I think it's still leads a lot to be desired, but their approach was definitely uh, pretty, pretty solid. I just don't know if they have, they don't have the silver bullet, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to say with that. I think it's the, it's still out to be decided. Okay. But it's well, also been done by the national aviary group out of uh, Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, that's a solid group of folks. Well, it'd be exciting if they, if they find some. Oh yeah, for sure. Are yeah. they bigger than a pileated woodpecker? Yeah, they're they're generally of that size, a little bigger. Um, they have a uh, hence the name, the ivory bill, but they're very similar in that. And that's often what um, you know when you get a, a the reports of, and you can see it in this. They actually include in the article, the appendix, the actual interviews of the people that describe what they saw. Um, and a lot of cases are asking him questions: Is how is it different? How is the feather pattern different from from um, uh, the pileated woodpecker, the sound, ba 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 ba. So there's a lot of comparisons to it. So it's very similar size, but it's a it's a large bird. I mean, ivory bill woodpecker is no joke. Or, or sorry, uh, a pileated <laughs> pileated woodpecker is no joke. It's a large, large bird. If you've ever seen one of those jokers close up on the ground working working a stump or working a down log or even I mean, you walking in the woods and you most will have a neon sign on. I mean, you see a recent activity. I mean, they have hollowed out a huge tree. They can really mm-hmm move some wood quickly. Um, so yeah, they're very similar uh, in size and in relation uh, to that. But uh, that's often what some of the, the counter arguments will be. Well, maybe it was just a, a pileated woodpecker with a different, uh, uh, what they're looking for a lot is a white pattern on the lower parts of the wings when, when the wings are closed and they're feeding on the tree. And uh, that's where it can get iffy if you don't have a, you have a real grainy shot or a long distance view of it. So. Hmm. All right, Lanny, what you got? Anything else? I'm uh, looking at videos of the ivory-billed woodpecker. It's a yeah. They, yeah. I think I've heard, heard that they call it the Lord God woodpecker. Yeah, Lord oh. God bird or the oh Grail bird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The pileated. No, no. The, there it the, is. The, the yeah. ivory-billed. They want to show up. That people when people see it, it's so impressive. They're like, Lord God. Oh, well, I mm-hmm. thought that was a pileated. <laughs> Maybe it's both. They're very similar looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's ask him. Which one of the, am I thinking about? Is that is that the ivory build or the? No, you're right. You're the ivory build. Yeah, it's called the uh, uh, Lord God bird. Also, uh, uh, the um, the Holy Grail, I believe, the Holy Grail bird, something like along those lines too. So yeah, okay. yeah. It has, I, I I like I said, I was involved, not necessarily involved, but I attended a lot of those meetings when I first moved uh, here. I was kind of doing a different type of programming, um, and there was a lot of interest. Um, is the potential of what if they actually had found that bird 
not saying they didn't in, in Arkansas and what it could bring to such a rural town outside of the hunting season that it could really boost up that that town. So I was work, working a little bit more in um, helping private landowners develop uh, fee-based enterprises tied to hunting. So that's why I was at those meetings uh, initially. So. Well, I tell you what, you think some of those big swamps in Louisiana that they, they, they could be one hidden down there. That's what I'm reading here. It's, it says there's a new study coming. You might have just mentioned this latest study published May 18th of 2023. Yes, uh, yep, the, that's the, the one. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. in Ecology and Evolution is the journal. Yeah, it said they had yeah. a sighting in Louisiana. Yeah. Well, let's hope. Yeah, maybe. So, Dr. Adam Ronke, this has been a lot of fun. Absolutely, and, and and I may not have said early on that you spend the the majority of your time managing urban wildlife. That's kind of what you yeah. do. So we uh, look. I can tell you're our kind of people. We we would enjoy being around you. Bronson said we would enjoy you, but yeah. we always at at some point in the show we turn it over to Dudley and he asks you a couple of questions that he's kind of formulated just for, so we get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, we okay. call it rapid fire, mm-hmm. and it's brought to you by our friends at friends at Springfield Armory. Yeah, and uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dudley. All right. Here All we right, go. Adam. So uh, I'd like for you to answer these fairly quickly. It it makes it more fun. And uh, you can say neither or it depends, but uh, I'd really, I prefer you try to just come up, you know, give us a. Yeah, you're looking for the black and white answer, not the government answer. I understand. Right, but <laughs> yeah, you can say both. All right. Okay. So uh, are you ready? Best I'm going to be. Let's do it. All right. Original or crispy? Crispy. Mild or spicy? Love love spicy, but unfortunately being told to go more mild lately. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Good old doctor. Sweet, sweet or unsweet? Ooh. Both. Mixed bag. All right. Mm. Oatmeal or grits? Oh, God. <laughs> Cheesy grits all the way. Cheese oh, grits. Nice. All right. He has assimilated into so the So he is a southern. Yeah, he is. All right. Quickly. Cornbread or roll? Oh, oh, cornbread, of course. All right. What interests you more, the ivory-billed woodpecker or the passenger pigeon? Mm. Oh, man, although Leopold talked about the passenger pigeon. There you go. Close to my heart. All right. Famous grouse, wild turkey, or gray goose? Well, turkey. <laughs> to kill a mockingbird, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, or lonesome dove? Ooh. Lonesome dove, I'll get in trouble if I don't say that. All right. <laughs> Uh, Baltimore Orioles, St. Louis Cardinals, or Toronto Blue Jays? <laughs> Blue Jays. Sunflower, sunflower seed brands. David or Biggs? Ooh, man, sunflowers. That's my addiction. Um, yeah, I'm kind of a Frito-Lay guy, but I'll go with Biggs. Sure. All right, all right. Donald Duck, Roadrunner, or Daffy Duck? <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke, I'll say Roadrunner. <laughs> Last but not least, Freebird. Blackbird, fly like an eagle, or when doves cry. <laughs> oh wow, free bird all the way. <laughs> Good job. He's very southern. Yeah, he is southern. You're not yeah. from New York. Leonard Skinner. <laughs> Cheese other, grits. Other than, he was, other than he was slow in a lot of his answers. So that 
that has. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, my yeah. father says I walk a lot slower than I used to, too. So yeah, it'll do. So that's it, a survival dude. mechanism in the heat down here. There's, There's no that. question about that. It works. <laughs> good job. Good job, Dudley, too. Wait, no, I take that back. The Southerners are usually slow the slower, talkers, yeah. but the Yankees are so, the fast yeah. talkers. He's nailed it. He nailed <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, he did 100%. a great job. Yeah, you did good. So, well, uh, Adam, uh, before we let you go, Mac has a trivia question we're going to ask you. So, We've got, uh, the way we do this, if you get this question right, one of our listeners who's left us a review will win a prize. If you get this wrong, we give them your cell phone number. (laughs) All right, cool. Okay, I'm game. (laughs) All right, Adam. So you're playing for Grit Pack, who left us a good review. Oh, Grit Pack. Um, So the prize is a GameKeeper cell helmet case for an iPhone. Oh, yeah, look at that. Those are nice. Yeah, they are. They're good. They're they're fantastic. They are. Look at that. So this is a true or false. A hummingbird's tongue is so long that it curls into its skull and around its eyes when it's not in use. True or false? Mm. Let's say uh, false. So a hummingbird's (laughs) tongue. (laughs) Well, according to this little website that we saw, uh-huh. It that uh, now and you I'm gonna say you know more than what we we know about this, <laughs> but that that's what it said. It was a did you know? And it said yeah. that the hummingbird's tongue wraps around uh, it's so long. I know that's uh very true for woodpeckers, uh, um, but I I guess it could apply to hummingbirds also. But I, I'll stick with my initial and say false, and I think I obviously got it wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, 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 Yes. The reason I know that for woodpeckers, not to give you a story, but uh, with mist netting, that's something when we catch them in those nets, we have to be very cognizant of their of their uh, their tongue. It has a lot of barbs on it. Can get caught up in the in the net mm-hmm. and it can actually uh, dislocate it, which is uh, end of the game for uh, the woodpecker. So that's I was trying to relate it to that, but uh, yeah, apparently I lost. I, I'll have to buy a, a cell phone case. We can talk about it when you give them my number. <laughs> That's good. Oh, uh, you, you've been a good sport. One hundred percent. Yeah, That's good we, stuff. I appreciate it. We, we've it's enjoyed. always good to make a state employee sweat. I mean, you know, it's good, good for us. It's good for our health. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything that when uh, you were dreading being on here that you thought, "Oh my goodness, these guys, if they know anything about birds, they'll ask me this question." Is there anything we should have asked we didn't? No, man, you guys asked quite a bit in a short period of time. And no, I don't dread it. He just happened to reach out to me in the busiest time of my year. So, um, no, I love I love coming on podcast um, and I actually do a lot with our local MPB uh, program. So I, I this is what I do. I'm an extension and I, I love I love communicating uh, science and I love interacting with uh, everyday folks that are interested in it. So. I'll I'll come back as many times as you want me to. Well, that great. sounds great. That's Thanks awesome. a lot. Is you there can... is there any uh, like ways that people can follow you on social media or something that you want to give out? Yeah, um, we're actually kind of developing some new websites with that. But if you uh, just Google Jackson uh, Metro Urban Wildlife Project, you'll get to go to our story map, which talks about our research here in Jackson that we just got uh, launched here recently. Um, also I, I just happen to have a really unique name. So if you Google Adam Ronke, I am the first 21 things that show up. So, <laughs> wow. Um, so, uh, and that's, uh, you know, my claim to fame. I didn't have to commit any crimes to do that. So, um, but, uh, yeah, you can just Google me, find me that way. Um, and then also another program I run is the master naturalist program with a colleague of mine. People are interested, particularly in Mississippi. 
uh, learning more about wildlife. We have a cool uh, uh, adult education course that's going on right now um, and that we offer uh, multiple times a year. And if you're listening to another state, chances are your state has a very similar program uh, with that. And I can put you in touch with the right folks. And that Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, uh, Mm -hmm. you said your wife worked there. Yeah. That is a fascinating place. Yeah, great place. anybody's ever passing through, I highly recommend taking the time to go there. It's a Uh, a really cool place. It's a great museum. And uh, she's been working hard with her colleagues at the Children's Museum and I don't know if you've been there recently, but there's a huge new uh, area for children out front of both of the museums. You can see it from I-55. It's a ten or thirteen million dollar investment uh, into an outdoor play area, and a lot more coming. So uh, I would get yelled at if I didn't make sure to put a plug in for that. You That's, can't miss it. You, you can go. see it, see it uh, day and night uh, from I-55 as you drive through Jackson. That's great to hear. Yeah, check it stuff. out. Yeah, and I think he is actually married to an angel. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And more ways than one. So, <laughs> Well, look, we've enjoyed having you. Lanny, we need to get him up here on a duck hunt. A hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, that'd, be, oh, that'd be a lot of fun. We'll let you watch yeah. us shoot some ducks. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And I'd love to bring my dog, <laughs> my dog Rye, with me, too. So he, right. he's pretty good, even though he's not a, a full-on bloodline. But uh He's worked out pretty, pretty, pretty well as a, as a rescue dog. So he works out good. He's a pretty chocolate lab. That's awesome. That's, oh, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. That's fun. Well, look, I, we're going to send you uh, in the next couple of days, you'll get a companion shirt uh, from our from a new line of clothes that uh, that's an old line that we've relaunched. Uh, a new old line. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, th- w- w- look, we, we appreciate it. We got some things to talk about, but we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. you. Yes, sir. Me. Thank appreciate you. The invite. Hopefully see you in person next time. Absolutely. Let's do it. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Lenny, I tell you, it's the, you know, although we're not talking about hunting these bars. No, it's it's just an immersion in nature. I mean, it goes back to why we love turkey hunting, why we love duck hunting. There's a a romance with birds. I mean, Dudley, you said that birds have a direct, you know, connection to heaven. So uh, I think just the things you see, you know, especially as you get older as a hunter, um, you just enjoy those little nuances, including, you know, those beautiful, colorful birds that come through. And it's not just songbirds. I mean, like Mississippi kites, there's birds of prey. Yeah, I saw some kites the other day yeah, on a walk after work. That come through there, you know, and so just check it out and pay attention to it. And we're just, we're interested in everything that there is to do outside. Why would you not want to learn as much as you can yeah, about I, birds? I don't want to see a plant that I don't know what it is. And I don't want to hear a bird that I don't know what it is. And I don't want to you know, see a bird, obviously, that I don't want it is. So, yeah, it's yeah. always fun. We need to post a little video of your tanager. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I need to get a video of him. For you know, sure. what's interesting is that, so that's, it's a, that's a summer tanager. Yes. And can you tell me what? color the female is yellow the, 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 the male is red it's yeah the female was yellow i thought that's right yeah. red is a, well that's the one he's chasing all the time yeah sure is you think he's seeing his reflection in the window I, I think he's it's an aggressive thing i think he thinks it's another male um it's the only way i, I can describe it so he spends a lot of time around the house ironically when i pull up in my gamekeeper truck he moves to it he'll sit on the window and <laughs> it's like he wants to come to work with us. And he's persistent. He is very persistent. My uh, wife named him Dodo. I don't Dodo. Know. <laughs> yeah, is Dodo still with us? Is yeah, this? Dodo's still with us. Yeah. He okay. left me some blueberries on my uh, the rail of my bed this morning. Yeah, he was sitting there and then dropped one and then flew off. Okay, so he's still so there. 
you were telling me the other day that another tanager flew into your window. Yeah. You thought it was Dodo. Yeah, but I don't think it was. Okay. Well, um, I was going to say I learned a lesson. Um, I had a bird flying to my window a couple months ago, and I remember seeing where Ricky Flint had gotten a bird that hit his window and put it in a shoebox. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of times you think these birds are dead. Well, they're really not dead. Just they're just out. in a state of shock. And so if you can put them like in an enclosed box, you know, like a shoe box and leave them there for 10 or 20 minutes to just sit there and breathe, oftentimes they'll recuperate. And then you can just take the top off the box and they'll let them flutter on off and they'll usually stand up and flutter off. And that happened with me and it, it worked. Wow. That, wow. I never heard of that. Mine didn't come back. Oh, he was there for. Good 20, 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> well, remember, we had to put all those things on the front door to keep Bobby from walking through the glass because he kept bumping into it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was, uh, yeah. We just ordered some of those bird things off of, off of Amazon and put them on the front door. And there it you worked. go. So, yeah. Where, where's the LS tractor? Last I saw it, Richie had it. Okay. And, and he was going to do some, I think he was putting in some water lines or something. Okay. Well, I mean, we got some work to do around here, you know? Yeah. Bring it on back. And Richie's not in the room right now for us to interrogate. That's but, right. uh, so yeah, we didn't really get to go over that. And there's one other thing I wanted to point out. So I didn't at the very beginning, but this episode is brought to you by, now listen to this now, guys, our friends at Heath Manufacturing that, that are making some uh, birdhouses and bird feeders, and, and they're, they're Gamekeeper branded. Nice. See one on the counter over there. That's right. That's a, that's a birdhouse. And they're going to offer uh, 15% off right now in the, the code. If you go to heathmfg.com and type in manufacturing GK bird, <laughs> okay. uh, that's a code that'll get you 15% off. Well, awesome birdhouse. A, a couple of wren houses for our porches they're good looking so they'll quit that's a good looking nest that's on good looking the top out. of the ceiling fan or something yeah so there you go so heath manufacturing our friends there uh, uh they make this a really so it's kind of new it's the first time we really talked about it but guys can go there and get them a little discount might be something good to surprise your wife with. yeah that's right father's day looking well, across looking across the room mac what's going on with biologic right now so we've got a lot of free shipping options. Uh, we've got free shipping on the endurance radish. Yeah, it's it's doing really good. We've got some planted just and yeah, just south of the office there. Yeah, just testing it a little bit. More. I tell you what, it is growing really, really fast. It really is. So and the drought tolerance. Of, yeah, the drought. I mean, this time of year. I mean, we have caught a few. Yeah, we've been catching some rains, and the spring protein peas are looking unbelievable out there. It's not too late to plant spring protein peas. So. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I enjoyed. I really enjoyed Adam. Yeah, I do too. Did too. The whole yeah. the the idea of the of of, of taking care of you of, of your wild birds intrigues me. It's just it's just really neat. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, well, if that's it, if we don't have anything else to, that we need to point out or point or, or cover, uh, I, I'm looking around the room. I think. Uh, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac. Mac. That's some coyotes, man. Song dogs. Song dogs.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.